You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Sorry, John Oliver, I borrowed your introduction. Don't worry, I won't say it's been a busy week. Listeners, here we are back for more datages. I'm your host, as always, Chad Hagel. Today we have a very special episode that is meaningful to me personally. In his 1933 presidential inauguration speech, Franklin D. Roosevelt famously said, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Borrowing from this classic turn of the tongue, I came up with today's datage, which is very fundamental to my view of life. The most important thing we have to learn is learning itself. What exactly does that mean? Stick around in about half an hour, you'll be able to answer that question for yourself. Today's episode is all about education. Let me share a little more Chad Hagel background so you can understand from where I'm coming in this discussion. First and foremost, the greatest blessing I have received in my life is the gift of an amazing education. It's the most important thing my father did for me. He made it possible for me to go to wonderful schools in Florida growing up, Park Maitland School and Trinity Preparatory School. Shout out to Trinity Prep Class of 94. And then my education at Stanford and the opportunities that have precipitated from that have truly elevated my life. About 15 years ago, I made a conscious decision to change my life's path, and I reduced my focus on my own business by about 50% and redirected that focus toward philanthropy. I devoted the majority of my philanthropy to education in various forms. In 2008, I formed an organization called SPIRE, Stanford Professionals in Real Estate, which in addition to being a way to connect alumni in the field of real estate, has a mission-driven focus on student outreach and educational program development at Stanford. Since that time, I've grown my engagement at Stanford to include a role on a task force focused on the Stanford Center for Spatial and Textual Analysis, or SESTA. I know that is a mouthful, but the center is essentially a humanities-based research platform that utilizes cutting-edge computing technologies and big data to ask and answer questions about history, sociology, anthropology, literature, and other disciplines that could not have been asked or answered in the past. Their work falls under the heading of Digital Humanities. We'll put a link to SESTA on the bulletin board. I recommend you check out the center. It's really fascinating stuff. My deeper and longer-term engagement at Stanford over the past several years has been through the Humanities and Sciences Council. I was grateful to Dean Richard Saller, the former Dean of Humanities and Sciences, or H&S for short, that he invited me to join the H&S Council after my initial engagement with SESTA. The role of the H&S Council is to engage regularly with the dean of the school, which is the largest at Stanford by enrollment and major, 
and to advise the dean on key topics and strategic initiatives. It's truly rewarding work. I'll share with you the story behind my introduction to Dean Saller and my journey through philanthropic engagement with both SESTA and the H&S Council in an upcoming episode of Datages devoted to philanthropy. But for now, let's focus on the humanities and the notion of a true liberal arts education. Now, you may be asking a question, or perhaps you've never thought to ask the question, and I'll ask it for you right now. What is a liberal arts education? To try to gain some perspective, let's go back to the late 19th century here in America. Let's talk about W.E.B. Du Bois. You may not have heard about W.E.B. Du Bois. I'll confess, I did not know anything about him until the work of Du Bois was shared with the H&S Council by the current dean, Deborah Satz. W.E.B. Du Bois was a remarkable scholar and an impactful sociologist in the era of emancipation here in the United States. He was the first African-American to earn his doctorate from Harvard in 1895. And I've heard Harvard is like the Stanford of the East, so that's impressive. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Du Bois' book, The Souls of Black Folk, is known as one of the foundations of the civil rights movement. The book is a collection of essays on several topics that focus upon systematized oppression as the tool that prevented African-Americans from achieving true equality in the evolving landscape of America. We'll put a link to the book in our bulletin board at datages.com so you can check it out for yourself. It's worth a read. Let's delve into how the souls of black folk has universal meaning to all of us in modern society, because I know it's not immediately obvious. Let's highlight a couple of quotes from Dubois so you can get a sense of his perspectives in his own words. Education must not simply teach work. It must teach life. Schoolhouses do not teach themselves. Piles of brick and mortar and machinery do not send out men. It is the trained living human soul, cultivated and strengthened by long study and thought, that breathes the real breath of life into boys and girls and makes them human, whether they be black or white, Greek, Russian, or American. It's important to put the work of Dubois into a historical context. Dubois was responding and reacting to the work of one of his most notable compatriots, Booker T. Washington who espoused a philosophy of self-help and solidarity among African Americans that was based upon fighting discrimination through hard work and material prosperity. Dubois asserted instead that social equality depended upon the pursuit of intellectual equality rather than financial equality. Why I find this time period in African American history informative to a universal study of educational systems is this. It's one of the few, perhaps only, times in a modern history when we can study an educational system from a clean slate. During the terrible period of slavery in America, there was absolutely no system of education for the slave population. In fact, education of the slaves was strictly forbidden, evidence that the slave oppressors of the time themselves understood the power of education and withheld that power in order to maintain control of the slave population. The age of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois and the time that has elapsed since then give all of us a great lens through which to evaluate the impacts of education on a population. I share this bit of historical perspective because this comparison between the philosophies of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois helps to illustrate the difference between education in a profession or trade versus a liberal arts education. Let's finally circle back now to putting a finite definition of the concept of a liberal arts education together. Did you know, listener, that it has absolutely nothing to do with being a liberal? 
and doesn't directly have anything to do with art? While many forms of art and the study of art are included in the liberal arts, the term art, in this case, refers to a learned skill, not actually some form of what we define as art. But I want to focus more on the word liberal. I believe that in our modern society, the liberal arts have a real branding problem here. Let me explain. The liberal arts are not associated with social policies that are progressive in nature, and they have nothing to do with a social or political philosophy that asserts individual rights. This is where the branding problem exists. The term liberal is so highly charged in our society, and higher education is under attack on this very basis of political ideology. Many outside of higher education believe that our university system has become overrun by an intellectual elite that is focused on a liberal political agenda and promoting socialist ideals through the practice of education. And it really doesn't help when the general population sees the word liberal staring them in the face. Come on, academia, that's just too easy. You might as well put on a duck suit in a political shooting gallery. And these people outside the realm of higher education are just capital-storming MAGA enthusiasts with no sense of reality, right? Sorry, but no. Even those closest to higher education share these concerns. John Echemendi, former provost of Stanford, published a piece for Stanford News as far back as February 21, 2017, entitled, The Threat from Within. In that piece, he wrote, Over the years, I have watched a growing intolerance at universities in this country. Not intolerance along racial or ethnic or gender lines, rather a kind of intellectual intolerance, a political one-sidedness that is the antithesis of what universities should stand for. This results in a kind of intellectual blindness that will, in the long run, be more damaging to universities than cuts in federal funding. It will be more damaging because we won't even see it. Again, that was 2017. Things have only gotten worse. I think the impacts of COVID definitely accelerated the proliferation of this intellectually blind culture foreshadowed by Echemendi. So what does the term liberal in liberal arts mean in its apolitical sense? It comes from the Latin libertas, meaning freedom. Libertas was actually a Roman goddess who was the personification of the concept of freedom. Images of Libertas adorned coins in the Roman Empire and even served as a symbol employed by the assassins of Julius Caesar. Early depictions of Libertas are not all that dissimilar to our Statue of Liberty here in the United States. A liberal arts education is one that embodies the spirit of Libertas. It is that body of knowledge that is worthy of and defining of a free man or woman. It stands for the freedom to gain knowledge and the willingness to respect or accept behavior or opinions different from one's own, along with an openness to new ideas. Think about that. Think about how different that is from the modern culture of higher education as explained by John Echemendi. In addition to the branding problem for the humanities, there is perhaps one greater problem, which is the overall decline in enrollment and participation in the humanities across the country. According to the publication Best Colleges, in 2020, the number of college students earning a bachelor's degree in humanities fell for the eighth consecutive year. Over that time, the number of humanities degrees awarded dropped by 25%. By 2020, they constituted less than 10% of all bachelor's degrees awarded, an all-time low figure. 
In fact, the more traditional humanities disciplines, English, history, philosophy, and foreign languages and literature, accounted for a mere 4% of bachelor's degrees awarded in 2020. What is driving these declines? There's a pervasive opinion among students and among parents that a liberal arts education or a humanities major is a poor investment in a student's future career potential. How many of you went to college and majored in a humanities discipline and heard at some point along the way, probably from your parents, you got a degree in what? How are you ever going to get a job with that? The reality is that the major we pursue in college has very little to do with our career field of choice, especially when you consider that the average American will change jobs 12 times in their adult life and will change careers completely three to seven times. When you think about the professional world in this context, you realize that the choice of major really shouldn't matter. But I've seen a problem in traditional liberal arts education at some institutions, Stanford among them, where the university is so committed to the liberal arts that anything that looks, sounds, or even smells like career development has no place in the university's mission. For those universities that completely reject professional development for their liberal arts students, the students can graduate with deficiencies and a lack of preparation for the professional sector that can be hard to overcome in the early part of their careers. And where are all of these students going? Most of them are moving toward those educational fields which are perceived as pre-professional in nature and the pathways to higher-paying jobs. These include engineering disciplines and computer science in particular. However, my opinion is that a degree in computer science without a broader educational framework is very short-sighted. I believe that the computer programmers of tomorrow are like the assembly line workers of today. The utility value of these employees is declining as automation increases. Automation, in the case of computer programming, is AI, artificial intelligence. Programming is an essential skill for anyone who wants to use computers. However, the field is becoming outdated since it's been driven by computer algorithms. In a few years, programmers will become obsolete since they can't invent programs on their own. Programming has been around for 50 years, and it's a field that's based on logic and math. Since programmers can only copy what's already been programmed, their skills will become obsolete. That's because there's not much you can do to invent new programming languages or applications. Programming may look complicated, but it's actually based on logic and can be copied easily. That means that within a few years, almost all programs will be created by computer algorithms instead of humans. This will lead to a significant drop in the demand for programmers as soon as current needs end. If you don't believe me that computers are capable of replacing humans and performing creative language tasks, including the language of computer programming, I have news for you. The last approximately 90 seconds of content I've just provided you was written by the AI writer and text generator known as Smoden. I put in the prompt, computer programmers will become obsolete due to artificial intelligence, and the platform spit out this content in like 10 seconds. I got this idea from my son, Brayden, who opted for this same exercise in writing his essay for his application for MIT. He had the algorithm write the essay, and then he wrote a companion piece to discuss the implications of that feat. As I've said before, sometimes as parents, we benefit greatly from looking to our own children for inspiration. We'll put a link in the bulletin board where you can take Smoden for a spin for yourself. It'll really blow your mind. Whether you study computer science, 
an engineering discipline, or one of the natural sciences in preparation for a career in one of those fields, the pace of innovation and discovery is so rapid now that the specific knowledge you pick up in a few years in a university setting will definitively be obsolete well within the span of your career. It's impossible to imagine that what you learn in college will last you for the rest of your life. That is, even if you remember it. I often tell people that I've forgotten more than most people will learn in a lifetime. Ah, the miracle of higher education. I believe some of the fundamental benefits that can only be learned through a comprehensive liberal arts education are the following. One, learning how to acquire knowledge through inquiry. Two, learning collaboration with others to obtain knowledge and solve problems. Three, learning how to communicate knowledge you have acquired to other people. Four, learning how to reconcile differing perspectives and beliefs in order to coexist. These are the critical principles and capabilities that could be forever lost if we see the demise of liberal arts education. With all of this pressure on career-focused education and with the sociopolitical headwinds against liberal arts education, is saving humanities a losing battle? I don't think so. What do we do? I think the answer comes from within. The only way to navigate the current challenges in higher education is to continue to develop the next generation of leaders and give them the tools to tackle these challenges. To me, this is achieved through balance that comes from the inclusion of a broad range of knowledge. The more we can promote diversity of all forms in education, the greater the impact we can have. The diversity of which I'm speaking is the incorporation of humanities education into programs of students studying STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. To employ terminology that was popularized when I was in Silicon Valley, we need to make our techies more fuzzy and our fuzzies more techie. Author and fellow Stanford alum Scott Harley makes the case for the value of a liberal arts education in the world of technology in his book, which is actually titled The Techie and the Fuzzy, in which he describes the benefit to big tech companies of, in his words, the precise skills that a liberal arts college education seeks to foster, chief among those being intellectual curiosity and confidence, creativity, strong interpersonal communication, empathy for others, and a love of learning and problem solving. You can find a link to his book in our bulletin board at datages.com. Here's a great story from my 20th reunion, where a graduate of the class of 1978 spoke to our group. He shared with us, It was my engineering degree that got me my first job, and my sociology degree that got me every single promotion thereafter. There you go. To find the poster child for modern higher ed, we just had to look in the class of 1978. Further, I think the inclusion of professional development and tools that can be applied to the private sector for majors in the humanities and sciences is critical to prepare those students to thrive in professional settings and beyond. Even the academic realm can benefit from leaders that have basic business operational skills. You may not know, listener, that in a higher education environment, it is often the case that academics rise up through the ranks of administrative leadership within a university and end up in a senior management role that is responsible for a business unit of the institution. In some cases, these academic leaders have little or no business management background at all. We've talked before on datages about the Peter Principle. I like to call this the Professor Peter Principle. 
I've been called upon to provide advice and guidance directly to academic leadership in my philanthropic career. I've been able to inject business principles and an entrepreneurial problem-solving approach to helping them improve operations within their department or program. I've seen firsthand that academic programs can excel when their intrinsic skill sets and abilities can be combined with those from the for-profit sector. I think the greatest resource a university possesses, and the one that I have seen as the most underutilized at Stanford, is its alumni population. In essence, the case I'm really making here is for the depolarization of our higher educational system. Every intellectual and professional environment benefits from diversity. If we can break down the wall of intolerance between liberal and conservative viewpoints in an educational environment, break down the barriers between STEM and humanities, break down the techie versus fuzzy divide, and break down the separation of academic study versus professional development, I truly believe we can fix what is broken in our educational system and better prepare the leaders of tomorrow. And it goes well beyond that. As a society, we really need to learn to coexist with mutual respect for one another outside the halls of higher education as well. The future of our entire democracy depends upon diversity and depolarization. That brings us to the end of our time here today, listeners. I truly hope you've enjoyed this topic. I know it was quite academic, but I hope that what I've shared today has helped you to see how these concepts about learning and higher education really matter for our children, our families, and and our society as a whole. Let me know if you found it meaningful. Let me know if you'd like to hear more on these topics. Email me your thoughts. You can always reach me directly, chad at datages.com. I value your input and I will get back to you. And I leave you today with this awesome dad joke, which is a college joke and a Chuck Norris joke wrapped into one. What could be better than that? What did Chuck Norris say to his father when he left for college? You're the man of the house now, Dad. Remember, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Dadages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit dadages.com and subscribe to the Dadages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father, and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table, and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do, because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now. <laughs>